Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Good afternoon. My name is Brad Swift. I'm the host of today's show. Today we present part two of our two-part interview with Delia Milliron, the deputy director of the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab Molecular Foundry. Delia Milliron received her undergraduate degree in chemistry from Princeton and her Ph.D. in physical chemistry from UC Berkeley. Delia leads a research group at the Molecular Foundry, which has spun off a startup named Heliotrope Technologies. Her group is a partner in the newly announced Joint Center for Energy Storage Research, a multi-state Department of Energy research hub focused on developing transformative new battery technologies. Delia's group was recently awarded a $3 million grant by the Department of Energy Advanced Research Projects Agency, Energy, ARPA-E, for her work on smart window technologies. Now the final part two of our interview. Uh, Even though nanoscience is a relatively new pursuit, How have the tools to execute your research and development, how have they advanced? The tools have progressed remarkably, and many would say that our ability to see material on the nanolane scale, and by see I mean more than just get a picture, but also to see the specifics of the chemistry, the electronic structure, and so on, that these advances in tools, in characterization tools, have been the catalyst for every other development in nanoscience because it's very difficult to move quickly forward in making new materials, for example, if you can't actually see what you're making. So starting with electron microscopy, which used the fact that electrons moving very quickly have a wavelength far shorter than that of light, And therefore, they have the ability to resolve features on the nanometer and, in fact, on the atomic length scale. That's tremendous, right? That's an incredible enabling capability for nanoscience. But electrons are limited in the chemical information, the electronic structure information. They can probe some of this, but light is still king. So spectroscopy, which is using light to probe chemical bonds and composition and so forth, is still king of understanding richness, rich detail about materials. So some of the most exciting advances to me in the tools for nanoscience are bringing optical spectroscopy, spectroscopy using light, to smaller and smaller and smaller length scales. The state of the art, if you use conventional optics, just nice, beautifully made lenses and so on, is that you can use light to look at things down to about half the wavelength of light. So for visible light, that means things on the order of a few hundred nanometers. 
if you're doing things very, very well. By manipulating the light further, leveraging nanoscale phenomena like the plasmonics I mentioned earlier, you can now squeeze light into extremely small volumes and do optical spectroscopy down to length scales tens of nanometers across. So doing full, rich optical characterization of materials, basically using light microscopy at 40 nanometer length scales, is now a reality. And the kind of information we can get about materials, their properties, and how those are related is just going to benefit tremendously from those kinds of new advances. Are there tools that you crave? unrealized tools? Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd love to be able to resolve rich chemical detail down to the length scale of atoms. You know, tens of nanometers is nice, but uh, most of our nanocrystals are smaller than this. They're five nanometers. They're 10 nanometers. They're not 40 or 50 nanometers. So we still haven't quite brought light in a useful way down to the dimensions of the materials that give us the most interesting properties. The other major thing many of us crave is to bring detailed characterization into three dimensions and really four dimensions. So how they're arranged in three-dimensional space definitely affects their properties, but it's difficult to image. So microscopic tools still often look at the surface of material, and so you get a, a two-dimensional map at high resolution. It's much more difficult to get high resolution images and information in three dimensions. And then the fourth dimension is, of course, time. So being able to follow uh, structure and the flow of energy and electrons in three-dimensional space as it progresses in time, pushing that time resolution shorter and shorter and shorter, can we track those processes so that we can understand how function emerges because function is, is very often dynamic in nature. It's not just a static moment in time. It's the way that chemistry and electrons and so forth progress over time. Explain the user program at the Foundry. How do people get involved in that? Sure. So the, the user program provides free access to scientists from all over the world who have an interest in leveraging expertise, materials, capabilities, techniques, and so on that we develop at the Foundry to advance their science or technology. And the mode that people use the Foundry takes all different forms. Uh, one of our favorites is for scientists to send a student or a postdoc or a young researcher or, in fact, visit themselves, for example, for a sabbatical and actually work with us side by side in our lab can best learn the ins and outs of working with synthesizing, measuring, whatever it is, the materials and techniques of interest to them. Um, we found that this is a very powerful way to expose young scholars to the potential for interdisciplinary research as we exercise it at the Foundry for this new mode of doing science where people from all different disciplines are talking every day about problems to advance the state of the art. But that's been very productive and I think those students and postdocs go home really changed in their outlook on how they approach science and they bring some of that perspective back to their home labs. They also, by the way, bring some perspective on our safety approach back to their home labs. And we really enjoy the success stories of having 
companies even and also academic research lab to use our approach to safety, in particular nanomaterial safety, but safety in general, as a blueprint for setting up their own labs or for reinvigorating the safety culture and so on of their own institutions. So this mode of people coming and working with us and engaging in all with a whole variety of scientists and techniques in our labs and then going back home has been tremendously effective. We also spend time, you know, shipping samples back and forth, doing some characterization on other people's materials or vice versa, shipping our materials out to people who have specialized characterization approaches that complement what we do well. And this is in the spirit, I would say, of good scientific collaboration in general. But the most exciting thing by far is to bring people together, mix up their ideas and their concepts and see new things emerge. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Our guest, Delia Milliron of Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, is talking about her work in nanoscience and nanotechnology. Can you talk about the safety guidelines that are in place at the Molecular Foundry in, in working with nanomaterials? And, yeah, so nanomaterials, because... It's a relatively new science to deliberately craft them. We still don't know in many cases the ways in which their toxicology and the risk of exposure may differ from the same material found in bulk form. And because we have this uncertainty, we owe it to ourselves and to the environment to treat them with an elevated level of care. And so the Department of Energy was actually f the first agency in the U.S. to create specific guidelines for handling nanoscale materials in laboratory environments. I was actually part of that process several years ago. And that policy is updated every year and it forms the basis for what we implement on the ground in the lab in terms of safety procedures. For example, we're particularly concerned about any nanomaterials that are not firmly bound within a matrix or firmly bound to a substrate because these have the potential to become airborne or volatilized or something like this. So that we most focus on these, which we call, quote unquote, unbound engineered nanoparticles, engineered meaning deliberately created. And these are always handled in enclosed, ventilated environments. So for us, things like glove boxes and fume hoods. And then we validate that those kinds of environments do indeed protect workers from exposure by doing low background tests for particle counts during agitated procedures. So we exaggerate the potential risk. We reduce the background particle count in the lab with a portable clean room. And we use a very sensitive particle counter to see if any countable particles are generated in the workspace of the actual scientists working in the lab. Um, and this helps us form systematic approaches to handling materials in ways that don't cause any exposure. Is the toxicology of nanomaterials a growing area of study? And what about the interaction of nanomaterials outside of the lab in the environment? Yes, definitely toxicology is a growing area of study, but you raise an important point, which is even before a nanomaterial that's out in the world can interact with a biological organism, 
it experiences the environment. And so the first thing that's maybe preliminary in a way but is now taking place at the same time is to understand the fate of nanomaterials in the environment. So how do they move through different kinds of soil, medium, because surface effects are so important? How do molecules that are just found very commonly around us adhere to the surfaces and change the properties of the nanomaterials before they ever encounter a biological organism because that will have a big effect then on their toxicology. So the fate of nanomaterials in the environment is definitely a, a growing area of study. And we've had scientists at the foundry who have collaborated with geologists, for example, to understand how soil conditions and pH and so forth can affect the transport of nanomaterials that are under consideration for solar energy applications should they end up released, how would they respond in different kinds of soil environments and be transported or, or not. In some cases, they are not readily transported and that's equally important to understand. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a life cycle study yes, of all absolutely. the materials. And those things can take a long time to really get a grasp of what the impact is. Mm-hmm. How then do we gauge the extent to which nanomaterials get leveraged in the short term and monitor the long-term impacts? I think monitoring is an important point, right? It will take even longer if we're not paying attention to learn how things interact with the environment and what their fate ultimately is. So the the science in the lab is important, but the science as technologies begin to be released is is equally important to track what's happening in in the real world. Um, In the meantime, it's important to be thoughtful about the expected life cycle of technologies incorporating nanomaterials. So recycling programs, encapsulation, recovery, assessment of likelihood of release from a completed, say, device like a solar cell. Solar cells are completely encapsulated in glass, right? So the initial thought would be, well, if this, if everything's going right, there will be no nanomaterials released. But you know, what if that panel breaks? What's the likelihood of that? So asking these questions upfront and taking you know, a responsible role in the life cycle of the technology, I think, is essential, particularly given the uncertainties. Our guest is Delia Milliron, the Deputy Director of the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab Molecular Foundry. She is a chemist working at the nanoscale. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. How much time do you spend paying attention to other areas of science and technology? As much as I possibly can. I I think inspiration in science comes from broad perspective. And so I am as far as I could get from being a biologist as a physical scientist, but the concepts of how biological systems work are quite intricate and inspiring. So new discoveries in biomechanical processes and so on can become the seed that gives me a new idea of how to put nanocrystals together in a way that generates totally new phenomena, for example. It's also just fascinating, honestly. I mean, I've always been fascinated with science, so paying attention to the 
uh, developments in the exploration of Mars or in astrophysics. There's a tremendous fundamental physics community at the lab and I love to listen to them talk about the discoveries they're making through telescope observations of distant supernovas and these sorts of things. I won't say that I can point to any direct impact that's had on my work, but I think expanding your general perspective on the way the world works at all these different length scales and time scales and so on, it forms your context as a scientist and you know, maybe as a person as well. Are there collaborations in other fields you'd like to see grow? So this idea of connecting biology more deliberately or the concepts of biology more deliberately to materials research, which is my area of investigation, I think is quite powerful and underexploited at this stage. It's amazing what molecular biologists now understand about the mechanisms that underlie life and how molecules interact in elaborate ways to synthesize DNA, to create proteins, to, you know, at completely mild conditions, fold proteins up and do catalytic activity, things that in the engineering world, you know, have traditionally been approached by brute force, you know, thousands of degrees C and so on. And so if we can take some of these concepts from biology and see how they can affect the way we approach synthetic materials to a greater extent. I think this will be a very important opportunity. Of course, there are some people doing this. I don't want to suggest that that's a totally new idea, but I think that connection could be a much broader avenue than what it has been so far. Do you feel there's an element of art in what you do? I think so. I definitely enjoy art, although not highly skilled. My adventures in creating sculpture, you know, clay, wood, and so on, in my mind, are in harmony with what we do on the atomic length scale in the way we try to craft nanoscale materials from atoms and then craft macroscale materials from those nanoscale materials, putting them together as these building blocks. Um, it has a sculptural aspect to it, and definitely there's beauty in the images generated when we use all these amazing cutting-edge techniques to visualize our structures. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to mention? I think the other comment I'd like to make, going back to the molecular foundry, and I lit up when you asked me, you know, what's the foundry about? Because I really think that the research environment, the approach to scientific research being carried out at the Molecular Foundry is a beautiful example for the way forward for science, that science can be greatly accelerated in discovery of new terrain, new subject areas entirely, through this mode of intense, dynamic collaboration across fields. I think it was somewhat deliberate and at the same time a bit of an accident that this emerged from the creation of the Molecular Foundry. What the founders of the Foundry did that was very smart was to hire a group of very young scientists who had an approach to science where they would clearly appreciate being involved 
in many different projects coming from many different perspectives. This was essential to make the user program work. Your scientists must be enthusiastic about collaborating with all these different scientists who have different objectives, different contexts, and so on. But as a consequence of hiring that group of people and putting them together in one building, what naturally happened is we all started to interact in the same way with each other. And the result is that you have a coupled series of dynamic feedback loops that greatly accelerate innovation, one of them being between our science and that of our users, and one of them being between the scientists internal to the building. And the results of that experiment, really, in scientific structure that's represented by the foundry are just starting to appear because we're still quite a young institution and I think that the impact of this sort of model is going to be felt for a long time and is going to be replicated and mapped onto other research centers. We've already seen a lot of interest in understanding the way we do our science as research centers are being set up around the world. And that doesn't happen very often. That's an exciting deviation from the traditional department structure, single principle investigator, directed research. As brilliant as one scientist and the research group may be, it lacks that dynamism that we have. So it's sort of a hive mentality to science, if you will. And that's really interesting and going to yield a lot of fruit, I think. Delia Milliron, thanks very much for coming on Spectrum. Thank you. of the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab are available monthly. The Molecular Foundry is on that tour. To sign up for a tour, go to the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab website, which is lbl.gov. A regular feature of Spectrum is to mention a few of the science and technology events happening over the next two weeks. It's a quiet time of the year, not a whole lot going on. But the Lawrence Hall of Science 3D Theater has daily screenings of two films, Space Junk and The Last Reef. Space Junk is a visually explosive journey of discovery that weighs the solutions aimed at restoring our planet's orbits. Space Junk runs through January 6, 2013. The Last Reef was made with new macro underwater cinematography. The Last Reef reveals an astonishing world rarely seen at this scale. The film presents an unprecedented vision of the intriguing creatures that participate in altering the geology of our planet. The Last Reef runs through May 5, 2013. The Exploratorium is leaving its only home at the Palace of Fine Arts and moving to Piers 15 and 17 on the Embarcadero in downtown San Francisco. The new Exploratorium will open in the spring of 2013. This coming January 2nd is the last day to experience the Exploratorium as it is currently installed at the Palace of Fine Arts. Opened in 1969, the Exploratorium has evolved in this unwieldy space for 43 years. Catch one final glimpse, Wednesday, January 2nd, 2013. Check the Exploratorium website for special events on that final day. 
The website is exploratorium.edu. For the news segment, I want to do something a little different. As the year draws to a close, I want to offer a short update on salient national and commercial space launch ventures. Starting with the U.S., NASA reports that the Orion spacecraft is coming together for its 2014 test flight. Orion is a new capsule that will take human exploration beyond Earth orbit for the first time in 40 years. The first unmanned flight test of Orion will be launched atop a Delta IV rocket from Cape Kennedy. The capsule will be flown 3,600 miles above the Earth and then return to the Earth at 5,000 miles per hour for reentry. The reentry will test the heat shields, the landing at sea, and the U.S. Navy's recovery of the capsule. The longer-term plans are to test the same capsule launched on NASA's next heavy-lift rocket, dubbed the Space Launch System, SLS, in 2017. SLS will launch NASA's Orion spacecraft and other payloads beyond low-Earth orbit, providing an entirely new capability for human exploration. SpaceX, the U.S. commercial space company, has completed the first of a contracted 12 supply missions to the International Space Station. SpaceX is also working with NASA to develop and test the Dragon capsule to allow it to transport humans to and from the International Space Station. On that point, in August, NASA announced the winners of the Commercial Crew Integrated Capability Funded Space Act Agreements. This program is designed to supply NASA with a domestic commercial capability to transport humans into low-Earth orbit, specifically to the International Space Station and back. The winning companies are Boeing, with a $460 million contract, SpaceX at $440 million, and Sierra Nevada Corporation receiving $212.5 million. In June 2012, China launched the Shenzhou-9 spacecraft atop a Long March rocket. The spacecraft carried three crew members on a mission to dock with the Chinese space station. The mission was successful and is widely regarded as a major accomplishment for the Chinese space program. The mission will be repeated in 2013. India marked its 101st space mission, October 1st of 2012, with the launch of its heaviest communications satellite, GSAT-10, from French Guyana. The Indian Space Research Organization has 10 missions scheduled for 2013. The tentative capper is a planned November 2013 Mars orbiter to be done without any international help. The Russian space program continues to struggle after a series of embarrassing failures in spacecraft launches and flight operations that have cast the future of the entire program in doubt. Observers fear that the rise of cheaper, more modern and reliable commercial space companies in the United States will peel off Russia's space services customers who currently infuse $1 billion annually into the Russian space industry. Insiders say consolidation, innovation, and modernization are required to save the industry. Leadership and funding for such a revival program are missing at this point. The European Space Agency successfully launched seven Ariane 5 rockets from their spaceport in French Guiana during 2012. The Ariane 5 has had 53 successful launches in a row since December 2002.
An interesting space junk liability arose for the European Space Agency when a large low-Earth orbit satellite nearing the end of its fuel supply suddenly went silent. The satellite is now stuck in a prime orbit corridor that will take 100 years to degrade and fall to Earth. During the next 100 years, this satellite may collide with other satellites. If it does, the European Space Agency is thought to be liable for the damage done. No removal method of space junk currently exists. That's it. Happy New Year. The music heard on the show is by Lostana David from his album Folk and Acoustic, made available by a Creative Commons license, 3.0 Attribution. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.